Um, but we have a treat today, someone from Virginia, Yes. right? Uh, so Nicole Hemmer is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Miller Center um, and a research associate at the U.S. Study Center at the University of Sydney. Her book is called <coughs> Messengers of the Right, which is a history of conservative media in the U.S. and it was published in 2016. She is a columnist for Vox, U.S. News and World Report, and The Age, which is based in Melbourne. Uh, the writings also appeared in a number of national and international publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Politico, The Washington Post, uh, The Los Angeles Times. She co-hosts and produces Past Present, which is a history podcast that launched in October 2015. And I'm sure she would answer questions about that, just about her talk today. <laughs> so um, if you want to pull out your phones and subscribe, you can totally do that now. I won't be offended. <laughs> um, and in June, she's going to become a senior editor at a new history blog uh, called Made by History, uh, based at the Washington Post. And it's, it's, it's exciting to think about like the Washington Post thinking, we need a history blog. That's right. <laughs> Um, but these are the moments when history helps us think about what's happening, I think, in very productive ways. Um, so I'm sure that uh, Nikki would be happy to answer your questions about any of these for as she makes into these, shall we say, non or less academic world. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes her such a good match for us, because I think at MIT in general and CMS in, in particular, we're interested in people who reach beyond the strictly academic audience. So the title of her talk today is From Taft to Trump, How Conservative Media Activists Won and Lost the GOP. Well, thank you all for coming out here. And um, thank you for that lovely introduction, Heather. And again, if you all have questions about anything, um, as you can imagine, given the last year of the campaign and the last three months of the administration, it has been a nonstop, it's been nonstop, really, um, as you can imagine from things like Tuesday night, the, uh, the hits just keep coming. But today I'm going to step back into a more history mode um, in a way that I hope sheds some light on some of the changes that have been happening in both politics but also in media in the past year and a half or two years. And I want to start in January of 2016 because that's when National Review finally took its stand. National Review, the conservative journal of opinion, in gold letters emblazoned on a deep blue background, the Journal of Conservative Thought proclaimed itself against Trump. The magazine sustained that position, more or less, throughout the campaign. This is an unusual position for it. And then Fox News, the conservative cable channel, it had a, a less overtly anti-Trump line, but it definitely had, during the campaign, a very tense relationship with Donald Trump. You'll remember Megyn Kelly asking him some difficult questions at a debate, and then him attacking Kelly. And Fox News really becoming this place that was not against Trump, but maybe a little Trump skeptical. And this was an unusual place for it to be, not only because it was a conservative channel, but because Donald Trump had been a regular on their morning show, Fox and Friends, for years and years and years. So this skepticism, and in the case of National Review, even outright rejection of the Republican frontrunner, was an unusual place for these two established conservative media outlets to be. They were much more comfortable in the spot that the website Breitbart now occupied, stalwart, to the, to the math defenders, and even champions of the Republican nominee. In the summer of 2016, Breitbart's position was about to change. Not its position on Trump, that to this day remains, they remain some of the um, now president's fiercest allies. But its position within the campaign, in August of 2016, Donald Trump hired Steve Bannon, 
Breitbart CEO, now I think a household name. And after the election, Trump appointed Bannon as his senior advisor, even putting him for a time on the National Security Council. This rapid elevation of Bannon from a conservative website to the National Security Council and senior advisor to the president sent shockwaves across the country, a figure from conservative media jumping straight into campaign politics and then into presidential politics. I mean, even in the world of partisan media, this was pretty unusual to give up all pretense of distance from the rough and tumble world of electoral politics, any sense of neutrality or even just some separation between media and electoral politics. But maybe it shouldn't have been that surprising. Conservative candidates have been able to count on support from Fox News and talk radio for a generation now. And in fact, the connection between conservative media and Republican politics is much older than that. Older, in fact, than I think most people think conservative media is. And that kind of political activism coming out of the media, as I'll talk about today, is deeply entwined in the DNA of conservative media. And understanding that history, that relationship between conservative media and Republican politics, can help us better understand not only the power of conservative media, why it's so influential, but how it's now evolved into something new over the last year to 18 months. A right-wing populist media that structured the message of the Trump campaign and now defines his presidency. And it starts in 1952 with a man named Robert Taft. The 1952 Republican convention was rigged. That was the conclusion of many conservatives that year. They had spent years toiling in the trenches for Robert Taft, the conservative senator from Ohio. And in 1952, Taft was next in line. He was the heir apparent to the Republican nomination. He was anti-New Deal, anti-interventionist, and that made him sort of the beau ideal of the early 1950s right. So they were expecting their guy to have a be a shoe in for the nomination. And then, out of nowhere, a challenger swept in. One of the biggest celebrities in America with no political experience, who hadn't even been a Republican a few years prior. But as soon as Dwight Eisenhower decided to vie for the Republican nomination, Taft was in trouble. When Eisenhower won the nomination, his victory was greeted with deep suspicion from conservatives. Conservative publisher Henry Regnery wrote to Bill Buckley, who was the editor and founder of National Review, with his thoughts on the convention. And this is what he wrote to Buckley about this stolen convention. Delegates, I understand, were bought or intimidated with Ford and General Motor dealerships, pressure from banks, insurance companies, and even, I'm told, Ford Foundation grants. Right? These Eastern elites had gotten in there and stolen the nomination from Taft. And when Buckley founded National Review a few years later in 1955, the magazine was still beating the same drum about the stolen nomination of 1952. In the very first issue of National Review, the editors blamed the machinations of Eastern elites for Eisenhower's rise to power. That first editorial read, early in 1951, a small band of Eastern financiers, international bankers, 
an industrialist organized the Eisenhower boom and entrusted its inflation to a New York advertising firm. The rest is history. You can hear that deeply coded language that would come up again in the 2016 campaign. And conservatives, I mean, we think about Eisenhower as this standard issue Republican, as a fairly conservative president, but conservatives had very little patience for Eisenhower. They saw him as what they called a Me Too Republican, someone who was willing to keep all of those changes instituted in the New Deal and to keep what they considered the Democrats' soft on communism foreign policy. Eisenhower wasn't enough of a cold warrior for conservatives in the 1950s. And seeing that the Republican Party was not the party of Taft anymore, but the party of Eisenhower, led conservatives to reconsider their role within the GOP. Maybe they thought the road to the White House didn't run through either the Democratic or the Republican Party. Maybe they would need a new party to advance their ideas. And the work on that new political effort didn't come from seasoned politicos, people who had spent a lifetime in party politics, but from folks within conservative media. Conservative media would chart the new political course for conservatives and their new party politics. In the 1940s and 50s, conservatives felt that they were excluded from political power by an entrenched liberal establishment, an entrenched liberal establishment in both the Democratic and the Republican parties. And at that time, they cultivated what we could usefully think of as an elite populism, which allowed media activists to speak as representatives of an oppressed minority, despite their access to traditional sources of economic, social, and political power. So we normally think of populists as the people who are shut out, and conservatives definitely saw themselves that way, but they were shut out, and they were, they were rich, and they were well-connected. So they were elites, but they also positioned themselves as populists. So this was not simply a story of grassroots activists agitating for change, and it wasn't just a story of well-placed elites manipulating the masses. I feel like those are the two stories we often hear about conservatives, that it's this grassroots uprising, or that it's astroturf, that it's people who are manipulating the masses, causing them to, to do what they want. But the work of media activists sat at the intersection of both those high-minded elites and those grassroots activists. And elite populism was a defining feature of conservative media from the very start. And the elite part was not in question. <laughs> These guys got Ivy League educations. Um, they tended to be in the hoity-toityest parts of the East Coast. But the populist part actually took them a while to develop. When their activism was simply a matter of formulating arguments and creating a sense of conservative identity, it didn't really matter that they represented a minority. And they did represent, in the 1950s, the conservative movement represented a small number of voters and activists. And what they found out with the 1964 campaign, which we'll talk about, is that you actually need a majority in order to win elections. Um, and so they had to start creating this populism. They had to start saying that they spoke for the majority of Americans. And at first, populism flavored their work. They sort of had this populist fervor, this upstart fervor. But it functioned largely as a linkage to the past. The first generation of media activists saw themselves operating in a populist tradition that extended back to the American founding. They compared their work to that of Thomas Paine, raising the cry of revolution while laying the groundwork for an entirely different form of government. They compared themselves to William Lloyd Garrison, 
demanding an end to slavery at a time when abolitionism was considered at best eccentric and at worst seditious. Drawn to iconoclast, media activists constructed a lineage that was as radical as it was conservative. If the establishment was liberal, then they were going to dedicate themselves to smashing that establishment. But they sought to do that not by initially turning to party politics or community organizing, but to media. And this is the important distinguishing feature of conservative activism after World War II, that the primary driver of it were people in media. They believed that media were key to political power, that controlling the means of communication would lead inevitably to political change, right? Control the means of communication and you define politics, you control politics. So they start their own publishing houses. They start their own radio programs. They start their own little magazines. Um, so let me map out who some of these people are. You may have heard of some of these names. The publishers came first. So Henry Regnery of Regnery Publishing. Regnery Publishing is still sort of that um, legacy conservative publisher, even though all of the big publishing houses now have conservative imprints. He, sure, it's, it's Regnery, R-E-G-N-E-R-Y. So this is Henry Regnery, and he founds his company in 1947. And another publisher, Devin Garrity, began pumping out conservative books from his publishing company, Devin Adair, as soon as World War II ended. Clarence Mannion and Dan Smoot began radio broadcasting in the early 1950s. And then conservative weeklies find their footings in the mid-1950s. In 1955, that's the year that National Review was founded and that the conservative magazine Human Events, which had initially been founded in 1944, printed all these esoteric essays that were lengthy and plotting and kind of boring. But in 1955, they shift to more topical, politics-focused reporting. And this is what would eventually make them the house paper of the Reagan administration in the 1980s. So all these folks, they married this media activism, all of their efforts in the media, with politics, using their role as the voices of conservatism to push for political change. Media activists in the 1950s were attempting to pry their audiences away from the long-standing party allegiances that they had and to push them toward an ideological approach to voting. So vote not because of your party identity, but because of your conservative beliefs. And this was really important in the 1950s because in the 1950s, the parties weren't sorted by ideology. You had conservative Republicans and moderate Republicans and liberal Republicans. You had conservative Democrats and moderate Democrats and liberal Democrats. So if you wanted to form a conservative party, what you had to do is you had to get those conservative Republicans and those conservative Democrats to vote the same, to ignore party ID and focus in on the ideology of the politician, and that was a big change. So when they first start this off, they're not working in either the Democratic or the Republican Party, they start with these kind of quixotic campaigns that don't actually have a ton of impact on national politics. Um, the campaigns I'm gonna tell you about, you probably are not going to have heard of, um, but they were really, really important as a developmental stage for both conservative media and conservative electoral politics. So when conservative media got bigger and when they had more influence, then they could start to influence the two major parties. So the story for this conservative third party activism starts in 1954 when Robert McCormick, who was the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, which is 
very conservative newspaper out of Chicago, launched a new organization to explore ways to promote conservative candidates and maybe to start a new conservative party. He called the organization For America, and in 1955 appointed two co-chairs, Clarence Mannion, whose radio show would become the nation's premier conservative radio program in the 1950s and 60s, and Dan Smoot, who was another popular conservative radio host. So in 1955, For America had emerged as a central political action organization of the right. And here's what's important. It was founded by a newspaper publisher, and it was headed up by two radio stars. I mean, here are people who are organizing politically, but their primary way of thinking about politics is through media. And that's going to have an impact on how they think about party politics and how they think about organizing. So again, 1955, we're talking three years after that stolen convention in 1952. So it's very early on. Media activists were just getting their start. Mannion's show started in 54. Again, National Review, human events are getting underway in 55. So conservative media is very, very new. So they hadn't waded into electoral politics in the same way before then. And it's telling that when what they did when they were faced with their first presidential election in 1956, they urged conservatives to reject both the Republican candidate Eisenhower and the Democratic candidate and to vote for a conservative, a man named T. Coleman Andrews. So Andrews. Andrews was an accountant. He had this thick Virginia drawl, very easygoing charm. He rose to national prominence in 1953, actually through the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower appointed him to head the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS. And like many of the conservatives in this early period of the Eisenhower administration, Andrews wasn't very well suited for a role within the Eisenhower administration. He just he disagreed with Eisenhower on too much stuff. So in 1955, he resigned. And soon after, he denounced the federal income tax as discriminatory, confiscatory, and politically unsound. The head of the IRS condemned the income tax as essentially unconstitutional. So maybe not the best fit for the role that he had, but it made him the perfect candidate for conservatives. I mean, you can imagine this day, a former head of the IRS who's now come out against taxation. That's the person that you want to put front and center when you're talking about your anti-tax ideas. And of course, this made Andrews just the beating heart of conservatism in 1956. And soon his name starts to crop up as a potential conservative candidate. But nobody really knew what to do with that. Because actually, party politics is hard, right? It's institution building. And so it required some work and some know-how from people who didn't actually know how to do it. So Clarence Mannion, who was running this For America organization, initially called for something called the American Party. But in early 1956, his language changed. And he began to, to argue that the answer wasn't a new party, because new parties are really hard. Um, but the emergence of a powerful new presidential ticket devoted to conservative ideas. So a ticket, not a party. A ticket you just need to get two people for. A party you need to actually build out a whole organization. And a ticket is precisely what For America would deliver in 1956. 
Andrews and his running mate, Thomas Verdell, were formally nominated at a states' rights tax reform rally in October. So it's October 1956 when they're being nominated. It's a bit of a slapdash organization. Uh, Mannion was the keynote speaker at this rally. Andrews and Wardell accepted the nomination, though they announced they would be running a weekend campaign because they both had day jobs. So they are not fully committed to this endeavor. But still, the ticket attracted some support, even though it was last minute, even though they wouldn't take a few weeks off to run for president. The Wall Street Journal, its editorial board, which rightly labeled this a party of protest, approvingly noted that this ticket might be a place for displaced conservatives to go and show that they were unhappy with the options of the two major parties. National Review's Washington correspondent, a man named Sam M. Jones, wrote an article strongly encouraging conservatives to vote for Andrews. And whereas the Wall Street Journal, understandably, mainly concentrated on Andrews' economic position, right, his anti-tax stance, Jones focused on something else. He focused on integration and civil rights. Again, it's 1956. Brown v. Board, the desegregation ruling is handed down in 1954. It would be one year later when Eisenhower sends troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to integrate the school there. And this is an important turning point for National Review or an important moment in its development. In the first few years, the magazine was still finding its footing on presentations of civil rights, segregation, and racism. And so when it's talking about these issues, it's mostly relying on Southern writers like Jones, like James J. Kilpatrick, to construct its pro-segregation defenses, because the magazine was pro-segregation. And the major exception to those two voices was Buckley's editorial, Why the South Must Prevail which comes out in 1957, and I think gives you a good sense of where the magazine was on civil rights, desegregation, and white supremacy. In this uh, editorial, Buckley concluded that the white community must predominate in the South because, for the time being, it is the advanced race. Okay, so it's a pretty straightforward white supremacist argument. That kind of over racist language is going to disappear from the magazine's pages by the late 1950s. They realize it's not tenable in, a, in an age that is moving toward desegregation, is moving toward black civil rights to make these overtly white supremacist arguments in the pages of the magazine. And so they'll replace that with a much more coded language that would predominate until recently. Um, and I should also say that this is only in terms of domestic policy. If you look at the magazine in the 1960s and 70s, you will still find overtly white supremacist arguments when they're talking about apartheid. These same arguments that you see in Why the South Must Prevail are applied to South Africa, Rhodesia, and the apartheid regimes of the 1960s and 70s. So media activists in this 56 campaign, they did not put civil rights, segregation, white supremacy, front and center. But they did use it strategically to try to attract third party, uh, to try to attract white Southern Democrats. At the October rally in Richmond, which was where they formally endorsed the Andrews Wardell ticket, Dan Smoot appealed to the crowd by talking about um, a recent statement that Eisenhower would be willing to use federal force to ensure school integration in the South. And this was a way of sort of not even dog whistling, <laughs> this is a way of saying, hey guys, if Eisenhower is elected again, he is going to use federal force in order to desegregate Southern schools. So vote for the Andrews Verdell ticket because they're not going to do that. And Andrews acknowledged this dynamic 
when he said Eisenhower supporters were flocking to his ticket in droves after it became clear that Eisenhower was willing to use federal force. So even though the ticket didn't involve these sort of schoolhouse declarations of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation always, it was impossible to disaggregate this ticket from massive resistance. A thick accented Virginian running on a state's rights ticket in 1956 can't be understood outside of that context. And at the same time, such a strong association with segregation limited the ticket's appeal outside the South, at least as politics was constituted in 1956. I think that's important context for understanding both why this ticket attracted 100,000 votes or so, uh, but also why those votes were largely um, out of Virginia and out of the South. Nemanian later claimed, with some accuracy, that For America was almost solely responsible for Andrew's independent candidacy. Again, slapdash effort, <laughs> failed to lay the groundwork for a lasting third party, and Andrews again netted only about 100,000 votes, mostly centered in the South. He had almost no impact on the race. This is not a name that you're going to hear in your history books when you study the 1956 election. But his candidacy was really important for media activists because they had weathered their first election. Mannion had served as the chairman of a presidential campaign, however small. National Review, which had been founded just a year earlier, had its first election agony. These are these, the agonies are what they called their editorial meetings where they would get together and they would fight over what ideas should be presented in the magazine, what positions should be endorsed. And elections were always incredibly trying time for magazines like this. Um, elections had torn apart conservative magazines in the past because they couldn't agree what to do. So National Review had managed to get through this. The editors had gained important insights into the tensions between ideological purity, voting for the most conservative candidate, and electoral pragmatism, voting for a candidate who can win. And they also discovered the difficulty of providing direction to readers as voters when the most desirable candidate, the most conservative candidate, had no shot at victory. I mean, how do you tell people, essentially, to throw away their votes? Vote for this guy because he's the most conservative. There's no way he's going to win. That's not an easy sell. Fast forward, 1959. Mannion begins to shift strategies. He's sort of the, the forefront of this electoral um, organizing. He began to think, as he had in 1956, that maybe a third party wasn't necessary. And there were two major parties already existing, already had structures set up, already had institutions. There were, as we talked about, conservative and moderate and liberal Democrats, same with Republicans. The trick, he thought, was not to start a new party but to affect an ideological realignment, scrape all of the conservatives out of one party, purge all of the liberals, and then have two parties that represent two distinct ideologies. That was his goal. Instead of starting a new party, reshape the two that already exist. And in looking for a candidate to do this, Mannion lit upon Barry Goldwater. So if you haven't seen pictures of Barry Goldwater, he's very tall, silver-haired, he has very chiseled features set off by dark-rimmed glasses. Goldwater, by 1959, was actually a pretty familiar face on the national stage. His calls for a more conservative Republican Party led the Washington Post to suggest that Goldwater's version of the GOP would be better symbolized by the extinct mastodon 
than by the live elephant. He was seen as somebody who was incredibly backwards looking. Yet Mannion saw Goldwater as the party's future, not its past. So the problem for Mannion was that Goldwater had insisted that he was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. He loved the idea of running for president, wasn't going to do it outside of the Republican Party. So Mannion shelved his third party designs and he got to work on the Republican nomination. And this is what Mannion did in 1959 and 1960. He organized for Barry Goldwater, took up all his off air time. And the thing was the first step in organizing for Goldwater was that he actually had to convince conservatives that Goldwater was actually conservative enough. And this is something we don't necessarily think about if you know the history of the GOP and how conservative Barry Goldwater was. But not all conservatives agreed that he was conservative enough. Not everyone was on the same page. So Mannion needed to make Goldwater synonymous with conservatism. And he thought, who better to spell out the senator's conservative principles than Goldwater himself? So this idea of a statement of belief, a Goldwater manifesto, appealed to Mannion on several levels. First, it would marry a prominent politician with conservative ideas, advancing both of them together. Right? Goldwater and conservatism would be advancing on the national stage together. A Goldwater tract would popularize the senator nationally, getting his name on the news, on bookshelves, and on the lips of conservatives across the country. And finally, Mannion believed that a Goldwater manifesto would lay the groundwork for a campaign before really getting Goldwater into it. So if Goldwater was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I should run in 1960 or not, well, you could send out copies of the Goldwater Manifesto and people could acquaint themselves with Goldwater's ideas until he was ready to actually go out and campaign. And that book, The Conscience of a Conservative, came together through Mannion's single-minded determination. And this book would define conservatism in 1960. When it became clear that Goldwater wouldn't have the time to devote to the project, Mannion brought aboard National Review contributor Brent Bozell to do the writing. So, even though Conscience of a Conservative is synonymous with Goldwater, it wasn't actually written by him. It was written by one of his speechwriters, Brent Bozell. When a publishing company couldn't be found to publish it, they couldn't find someone to agree to publish this book, Mannion used his own printing company, Victor Publishing, to publish it. He arranged for distribution as well, focusing on corporations who could purchase like 10,000 copies of the book and send them out. And when Conscious of a Conservative launched in April of 1960, it was an instant success. I mean, not only in book sales, although it was a bestseller, I displaced a book called Profiles and Courage from number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Is that, is that including the corporate purchases? I believe it was including the corporate purchases because the New York Times hadn't learned yet to pull out bulk purchases. Yep. Um, so it was an instant success when it came to book sales, but it was also an instant success in defining Goldwater as this central, perhaps sole conservative on the national stage. It made him a nationally recognized figure. Now, the book did better than the 1960 campaign. Goldwater does not get very far. The nomination goes to Vice President Richard Nixon. Um, and at the 1960 convention, Goldwater's there but he actually admonishes conservatives who were threatening to stay home in November to not vote for Nixon. He told them to grow up and get to work. You're not just conservatives, you're Republicans too, and Nixon is a better choice than Kennedy. And grow up and get to work is what they did. 
Soon after the election, conservative media activists turned their attention to the next election cycle. And Conscience of a Conservative ensured Goldwater would remain the movement's best hope for the 1964 race. Four years later, media activists were poised to become full-fledged political leaders. People like Bill Rusher, who was the publisher for National Review, took the political organizing reins from Mannion. But even those who were not part of the Goldwater for America team took on heightened importance as Goldwater emerged as the frontrunner and then the nominee. So Goldwater, through us political organizing and through all of this promotional work, becomes the Republican nominee in 1964. And that elevates the entire conservative movement because they're all tied together at that point. Conservatives kind of made Goldwater in 1960. And in 1964, Goldwater is making the conservative movement and remaking the Republican Party. This was really the first time that a conservative movement figure had a shot at the presidency. So the campaign put conservatism right smack in the middle of American politics, which was an odd place for it to be because it had existed on the fringes just a few years earlier. If you read magazine articles or Times articles from 1961, 1962, they treat conservatism as a foreign ideology, as a dangerous fringe outlier. There are these, um, these, these articles that run in the New York Times magazine that talk about the conservative movement, and they range from National Review to the American Nazi Party, and just kind of jumble them all together, because they're all sort of spooky right-wing things. Um, and by 1964, the darling of this conservative movement has become the Republican nominee. So there they are, smack in the middle of American politics. And yet, this was a position that was not without its challenges. Established conservative outlets like Mannion, the Mannion Forum, like National Review, suddenly found themselves facing competition from upstarts who were able to challenge their dominance. And this is where this story should start to sound a little familiar. Legacy conservative media in the middle of this tumultuous campaign being challenged by outsiders within the conservative movement. These little self-published paperbacks spilling over with dark conspiratorial analyses of Lyndon Johnson and liberalism sold millions of copies throughout the campaign, and they largely bypassed the conservative media establishment. And I think it's worth taking just a moment to talk about these books, because there are some parallels to the recent campaign. There were three books in particular that just flooded the country during 1964. 16 million copies, I guess something like 60 times the number of copies that the bestseller of 1963 put out. 16 million copies were in circulation by election day. The names might sound familiar, they might not. None dare call it treason. A choice, not an echo. A Texan looks at Lyndon. Appearing in rapid succession, the books startled observers with their dark and conspiratorial interpretations of American history. In None Dare Call It Treason, John Stormer spun a tale of internal subversion and weak-willed foreign policy that marked America's retreat from victory in the Cold War. As he wrote, Every communist country in the world literally has Made in the USA stamped on it. Phyllis Schlafly, author of A Choice Not an Echo, accused a few secret kingmakers in the Republican Party of conspiring to keep conservatives out of power. She argued that party elites had used the techniques of advertising to manipulate voters into picking the kingmaker's preferred candidate. And after the convention, and I think this is the most interesting book, a Texas Ranger named J. Evitz Haley printed A Texan Looks at Linden. 
You didn't have to look any farther than the subtitle, which was a study in illegitimate power, to get Haley's point. But if you were willing to delve further, if you were willing to read the book, you would find 200 pages of greased palms, stolen elections, and suspicious deaths. And by the end of the book, about a dozen deaths had been imputed to Johnson and his colleagues. I mean, Haley's claims rivaled the darkest and the most bizarre of the Clinton conspiracies. He argued that President Johnson was better suited for the penitentiary than the presidency. He called Johnson an inordinately vain, egotistical, ambitious extrovert, and claimed that Lady Bird Johnson, his wife, mirrored Lady Macbeth's consuming ambition for the growth of her husband's power. Of the presidential assassination that preceded Johnson's rise to the presidency, he hinted darkly, what a strange coincidence. So even the assassination of JFK, he laid at the feet of Lyndon Johnson. The success of these hatchets with soft cover sheaths, as the Washington, or as the Chicago Tribune characterized them, revealed the innate and sometimes contradictory populism of grassroots conservatives. And grassroots conservatives, like most populists, harbored deep suspicion of institutions that weren't under their control, particularly the media and the Republican Party. But they also relied on established conservative networks to craft an alternate, alternate campaign unmediated by outside institutions. They needed conservative bookstores and conservative organizations to distribute copies of their books. And for anyone who's been following Infowars and Pizzagate and Alex Jones, you can begin to understand how even the most conspiratorial of these books could penetrate conservative circles. The ideas were useful, and as long as that was true, they could be accepted, at least on the edges. All right, so once Goldwater won the nomination, right-wing media were no longer the primary group crafting his message and image. Um, conservatives kind of lose control of Goldwater once he wins the nomination. He gets rid of all of the activists who had helped him win the nomination. He surrounds himself by what was called the Arizona Mafia. All of his friends from Arizona, where he was the senator, um, became part of his campaign. And he began to distance himself from conservative activists. And yet, for all of these challenges, for having to deal with these upstart independent publishers, for having to deal with an unwelcoming Goldwater campaign, the 1964 campaign remained a rare opportunity to complete the process media activists had begun in the 1950s to interact with their readers and listeners, not just as audience members, but as voters, as partisan political organizers. Right? That's a big change. That you're not just trying to shape ideas but you're trying to shape voting habits, um, which is a big process that conservative media are engaged in in the first half of the 1960s. Now, as for the 1964 election, it doesn't go well for Goldwater. He loses in a historic landslide. I mean, his ideas, the very ideas that had won him so much conservative adoration, actually sounded kind of bizarre to Americans who had never contemplated getting rid of Social Security or who never thought that containment of communism was actually not a strong enough footing for the Cold War. Painted as an extremist, he convinced fewer than 40% of Americans to vote for him. And that demonstrated something about both the power and the limits of conservative media. With skillful, skillful organization and the right political headwinds, they could elevate a true conservative to a major party presidential nominee. But having developed their ideas and their rhetoric in conservative-only spaces, they found that when faced with the broad American electorate, the tools of conservative media were ill-suited for building national majorities. 
of course, Goldwater's historic loss does not end conservatism in the Republican Party, quite the opposite. Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 and the Republican Revolution of 1994 clears out the remaining liberal Republicans. And it helped make the GOP the party of conservative ideas. That realignment actually happened. They purged all the liberals and brought in all the conservatives. And these Republican politicians found support from a new generation of media activists, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News. And it's worth looking at how these conservative media Republican Party alliances were actually formed. I mean, we, here we've talked about what they looked like in the 1960s. What did they look like in the 1990s? In 1992, George H.W. Bush was facing a really tough bid for re-election. It wasn't just the charismatic Arkansas governor who'd snagged the Democratic nomination that was giving him trouble. It was also the reedy-voiced Texan running as an independent, a man named Ross Perot. Throughout the summer of 1992, no one was singing Ross Perot's praises louder than Rush Limbaugh. 1992 was the first presidential election year that Limbaugh would actually be a player on the national stage. So his radio show goes national in 1988, but isn't really a thing yet when it comes to the 1988 election. It's really in 1991 and 92 that Limbaugh becomes this kind of powerhouse on the national stage a genuine media superstar. And President Bush was paying attention to this. He was aware that Limbaugh was extremely popular with the conservative base. And he didn't really know how much sway Limbaugh had. He didn't know if Limbaugh could make people vote one way or the other. But it was a close enough race that he didn't want to risk it. So he turned on the charm. He invited Limbaugh and the producer of Limbaugh's television show, a man named Roger Ailes, to come to the White House and to stay overnight. He even carried Limbaugh's bag when they were walking into the White House, a story that Limbaugh has told no fewer than two dozen times on his radio program. And afterward, Limbaugh changed his tune on Bush. He stopped promoting Perot as much. He started talking about what a good conservative George H.W. Bush was. And you know, Bush lost that election. But his outreach ensured that Limbaugh would be treated as a kingmaker within the Republican Party. When Republicans swept the midterm elections in a historic victory in 1994, they deemed Limbaugh the majority maker. They made him an honorary member of their incoming caucus in 1994. And the new Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, he threw a rager of a party on election night 1994, a party that was emceed by a fellow Georgian named Sean Hannity. By the time Fox News launched in 1996, conservative media were already the gatekeepers for Republican Party politics. Something else happened in those years as well. Conservative media grew increasingly powerful and ubiquitous. And as they did, they began to drive the narrative, not only for conservatives, but most political media. They began to take an outsized role in driving the political conversation on non-conservative outlets. And that meant that the ideas and the vocabulary that were forged in conservative media weren't actually alien to most Americans anymore. You didn't need to listen to Rush Limbaugh to have heard the term feminazi. Um, you didn't have to listen to talk radio or Fox News to know the stories that were being driven on those outlets. Um, more recently, like the Benghazi scandal, right? Um, that was driven in conservative media, picked up by Republican politicians, and became a story that all other media were covering more extensively than they would have as well. It was also during these years, in the 1990s and 20 aughts, that republicanism and conservatism converged. And, and that matters. 
you know, this period of time when we start talking about these two things interchangeably, conservatism and republicanism, because actually Republican Party politics and conservative ideas didn't always match up. Sometimes they were in conflict. During the George W. Bush administration, an era of big government conservatism, the right often compromised its principles to advance the party's power. Increasingly, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and the GOP were becoming an inseparable and an ossified elite establishment. I mean, they were the establishment on the right. And as populism became the dominant mode of right-wing politics, all establishments became targets. Conservative media were not immune to this populist wave. Discontent with Fox News's perceived establishment bias burst forth in the 2012 primaries. I mean, you might remember this, you might not, but both Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, two men who had to give up their Fox News contracts in order to run for president, both lambasted Fox News as biased during the 2012 election, said it was biased toward Mitt Romney. And these complaints resonated with a populist base that rejected Romney, as well as the media outlets that were providing him cover. You know, in 2012, it wasn't quite enough to overturn the establishment. At the time, there was no central political figure to organize around, no crystallizing call to action to make America great again. The populist base was discontented in 2012, but it wasn't centralized, and it didn't have the kind of power that it would need. Add to that the way opposition to Obama united the right-wing populace and the conservative movement, because that disguised these tensions that had come up in 2012. In 2012, the tensions between populists and elite conservative establishment folks was there. But they both hated Obama so much that for a few years, those tensions sort of submerged. But there was a widening gap between these two groups on the right. People mocked the Tea Party or who carried a sign saying, keep your government hands off my Medicare. But that wasn't, I mean, it was contradictory, but it was an expression of populist right-wing politics, right? I deserve this entitlement program. Um, don't take it away. And that's the kind of thing when, when Trump was saying, I'm not going to touch your Medicare. I'm not going to touch your Social Security. That's the populist economics he was speaking to. And that's what that Tea Party sign indicated. It was an expression of sort of a proto-Trump politics or a post-Pat Buchanan politics in the Republican Party. It was a signal that in the wake of the financial crisis, the Tea Party base was exhibiting a right-wing economic populism, not a doctrinaire free market conservatism. And after 2012, those right-wing populists found even more to be angry about. Remember the Republican Party autopsy in 2012? GOP leaders argued that the party had to do more to attract non-white voters. And their top policy priority? Immigration reform. Senator Marco Rubio spearheaded the drive for comprehensive immigration reform. And to whip up support for reform, or to dull criticisms of it, he appealed to major conservative media outlets. He teamed up with Chuck Schumer to make the pitch to Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes of Fox News. And then they both privately appealed to Rush Limbaugh, saying, look, we're going forward with immigration reform. Don't beat us up too badly. And it worked, more or less. For a few months, the tenor in conservative media changed. There were fewer outright attacks on immigration reform. And on shows like The O'Reilly Factor and Hannity, there was a robust support for Rubio's efforts on immigration. 
I swear to God, we forget this now. But if you turn on Hannity's show, on any time in a three-month period when this was going on, he was pro-immigration reform. This person who would become a stalwart Trump supporter was at the leading edge of defending this Republican effort um, for immigration reform. But the base saw this attempt to reform immigration law as a betrayal, not just by the GOP, but by those trusted media voices. Within the span of a few months, Marco Rubio went from the party's next big thing to being booed wherever he went, denounced as a rhino and as a traitor. Soon he was telling Breitbart News that he no longer supported the reform bill he had been the champion of. And there's that name, Breitbart. It's become a familiar part of the 2016 election and since, um, and since 2012, the site has been run by Steve Bannon. As soon as Trump entered the race, Breitbart morphed into a mouthpiece of the campaign. You can see this happen very quickly. And as it, it, as it did, it abandoned its nominal conservatism for what it called populist nationalism. And the website in the middle of the campaign actually put up a manifesto saying, we're not a conservative website. We're a populist nationalist website. We're a populist nationalist coalition. And conservatives need to get in line. It's not your time anymore. It's time for the nationalists. It also called for conservatives to become populists on immigration, trade, and foreign policy, also known as the Trump platform. So Donald Trump opened the door for Breitbart's ascendance. The site rode the same developments that fueled Trump's campaign, growing frustration with the establishment, the disappearance of gatekeepers, and the opportunities provided by fragmentation. Right? That 17-person field that, that Trump was a part of is mirrored by the fragmentation of media more broadly, thanks to innovations in technology. So the essentials had been in place for years. The internet, social media, the growth of digital cable, all of this created new spaces for different right-wing voices, not just conservative voices, but a broader range of right-wing voices. And the outlets had been around for years. Like Breitbart didn't just spring up in 2015 or 2016, but it took the Trump campaign to arm these insurgent media, to give them the ammunition that they needed to take on the conservative media establishment without being waved off as gadflies. So what does this mean now that Donald Trump, with Steve Bannon at his side, has won the election and is president? The Republican Party has fragmented. The narrative shifted overnight when Trump won the election, but the Republican Party is as fragmented as it's ever been. But it's being held together, just as it was during the Obama years by opposition to Obama. It's now being held together by the victory of Donald Trump and the need to stay together as much as they can um, in order to get some things passed. The GOP is becoming a broader right-wing coalition that's now divided in many ways on economic policy, foreign policy, and size of government, but united by power, white nationalism, and opposition to cultural liberalism. What's happened at Fox News has been really interesting. Rather than becoming an alternative to Trumpism, which you could imagine had Trump lost the election, Megyn Kelly being paid enough to stay, some of those voices like Shep Smith um, and Greta Van Susteren being elevated. But when Trump won, Fox began to mold itself in Breitbart's image. Gone are the Trump skeptics. Megyn Kelly, Greta Van Susteren, George Will, inner the populist, Tucker Carlson, Eric Bowling, Nigel Farage. Populism has become the name of the game at the network that once recoiled from conservative heterodoxy. There are still Trump skeptics in right-wing media. But at places like National Review, 
they're not hashtag never Trump anymore. Right? They're kind of the anti-anti-Trump voices, um, beating up on the resistance and liberal opposition to Trump. And it's in this fractured right-wing media environment that the fights over what policies to advance have been carried out. Witness the battle over healthcare. I feel like this is the most excellent example. At Breitbart, the AHCA, the American Healthcare Act, was bashed repeatedly because of its unpopularity and its impact on the white working class, right? If, if the white working class is part of this populist nationalist base, they were not going to benefit from the passage of the AHCA, and Breitbart knew that. A National Review criticized it for being badly written and really bad policy. Ultimately, the AHCA was kind of rewritten um, and then passed through the House. The more conservative bill won passage. Right? They made the bill more conservative and it managed to make it through the House. But I wonder if that understanding of the bill suddenly seems a little bit irrelevant. Conservatism and liberalism still matter, but that might not be the axis for best understanding the policies that are coming out now when there's this fight going on on the right between conservatism and populist nationalism. Look, conservative legislation will occasionally pass during the Trump years. Conservative ideas will still be advanced across right-wing media. But conservatism, the legacy of these Goldwater efforts back in the 1950s and 60s, conservatism no longer controls the party. The party of Goldwater, the party of Reagan, is no more. Now the GOP is the party of Trump. Thanks. And I'm happy to talk about any of that or other things. I'll start off. There's no one else. Can I, can I ask a few questions? A question about terminology and then a kind uh -huh. of sprawling historical context question. So, I mean, you're totally persuasive that that generation of media activists, the Regnery, Buckley, Mannion, um, you know, are media figures or media activists. But was that their, was that their self-conception or are you imposing our current conception on them? That is, they, did they see themselves as media figures or as a as a vanguard, an ideological vanguard. So that's sort of the terminological question. And then my bigger question is, what's the secret sauce here? Because media activists taking over a party and coming to power is not was not new with this generation, nor was it exclusive to the right. And you can go back to, you know, Horace Greeley or William Randolph Hearst you know, as earlier examples that were not successful of media figures who, who do this. And then, you know, even contemporaries on the other side of the spectrum, you know, the Kennedys were media moguls. The Kennedys were media moguls. Lyndon Johnson, I mean, it was Lady Bird, but really Lyndon Johnson owned more, many more radio and television stations with much more of a following than Clarence Mannion ever had. And yet they didn't succeed in having the kind of a media figure takeover. So what made, what made conservatives in this generation stand out and have success when others before on the other side didn't? Yeah, those are two really great questions. I think the answer to your first question is that A, they, they definitely did see themselves as media activists. If you look, I mean, they didn't use that terminology, that's my own terminology, obviously, but they saw media as the primary mode of their activism, and that's something they talked about quite openly. They, they looked around and they said, why are we 
Ivy League graduates and well-heeled lawyers and political activists. I mean, Clarence Mannion was in the Eisenhower administration for a brief spell. So these are people who entertain hopes of being members of the cabinet or Supreme Court justices. Why don't we have the power to shape politics? Was this motivating question. They looked around and if you look at their papers in the 1950s, they're like, we don't have control over the communication of ideas. We have to have that kind of control. And so they put their efforts into media and they see themselves primarily working in media. That is not separate from their identities as ideological intellectuals, right? They see media as the way to get those ideas out there. Media first, and then organizations and party politics, because that's what follows. You know, they found National Review in 1955. They start Young Americans for Freedom in 1960, started by National Review um, editors, and they get involved in the Goldwater campaign in 1964. Um, but their primary work remains throughout that period: media. Now, of course, there are folks in media who get involved in campaigns earlier, and your examples are right on. But there's a difference between a person in media being active in politics and an entire group constructing a set of arguments about the media and using the media to change politics. Um, Horace Greeley is, you know, he has friends in the media, but he's not creating a cohort of media activists who are arguing that media need to be reconstructed along different value grounds. I mean, this is what's happening within conservative media. They're not just creating these independent outlets, because independent ideological outlets existed. You had the nation, you had the New Republic. Um, but what you didn't necessarily have with those was a critique of media practices, um, like the critique of objectivity that conservative media activists are involved with, and this argument about liberal media bias that needs to be overthrown. And it's that more cohesive critique married with political activism that I think sets apart these activists from figures like Charles Coughlin or Horace Greeley, or even like Kennedy and Johnson. Because Kennedy and Johnson, they certainly had their hands in a lot of media pies, but they, their, primary, their primary identity was politicians. Right, that's how they self-defined. Um, and that's where their time went. And that, I think, is really important. Where do the majority of their efforts go to? I'm curious where um, the Tea Party fits into this narrative. Because there was a talk earlier today by Elizabeth uh, Becky, huh? And she made a really and strong argument for the Tea Party's being sort of undervalued in the story of the ascendance of Trump, even if they differ very much in ideology just in what it did to uh, help sort of crumble the core of the conservative foundation, and I'm wondering how the Tea Party fits into the media narrative uh, look at what's happened over the past several years. Yeah, this has been something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because I think that the both the media interpretation and also the conservative movement's interpretation of the Tea Party was that this was an expression of hardline ideological conservatism. That this was a sign that the conservative movement and the Republican Party were moving, being pushed further to the right, but further to the right along distinct ideological lines, right? You can't step out of line on any of these policy things or you'll get a Tea Party primary challenge, whether it's immigration reform or economics or what have you. I mean, the rise of Trump makes me think that that narrative is wrong, that the, that the Tea Party was a populist expression. And because in 2010, 2011, their primary enemy so to speak, was actually within the Republican Party, right? That they were challenging the Republican Party establishment. They were challenging the Republican Party establishment from the right, but it does seem like their politics were not as fixed 
as we would think that they were. And I do find persuasive the argument that the Tea Party was, can at least be perceived as a proto-Trump um, moment. I mean, I think we have to look at the data on this. A lot of the early writing that came out about the Tea Party, including some very good stuff from Theta Scotchpaul and other, um, and Vanessa Williams and other political scientists, did suggest the Tea Party were conservative, old conservative activists in new wineskins. Like, they just rebranded themselves. But I think in retrospect, there really is something there of this populist discontent that maybe ran down the streams of ideology, but wasn't defined by it. Like, maybe that's how people were used to being activists. That's where their activism flowed. But things seem to have been blown wide open um, in the last few years. So I don't know that we know yet how to make those connections. But I do think that recent political events invite us to rethink the way that we've thought about the Tea Party. I mean, she, she made the argument basically said that she more ethnographic research that the Tea Party sort of isn't fairly labeled as like a mastery church movement because the cop, the Koch brothers would have swooped in with all their money. That actually there really was, it really was kind of like a popular protest. Yeah, I've never thought that they were astroturfs. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that that's. An, I mean, we see this again and again from both the left and the right. It's a way to delegitimize protest movements. Is to say that, you know, they're paid protesters by George Soros, or to say that they're organized by the Koch brothers. But um, my sense, and I think that the early work by Scotch Paul and Williams, and I think that she's <laughs> she's right as well. That this um, this was. Genuine. I mean, it's it's genuine populist response to what had just happened, which a the election of an African American president, but also the global economy collapsed. Like there are going to be genuine populist political movements that come when that happens, um, and I think dismissing those as astroturf really undervalues the agency of people in a lot of ways and their ability to make political choices. Yeah, I th I'm glad that she's making that argument because I agree with that. <laughs> Um, what I wonder about, though, is sort of um, the importance of, for the two generations of figures of ideology versus sort of values or worldview as an issue. And I particularly don't know about sort of the older generation of conservative media activists. To what extent are they united by a given worldview or a set of values versus a sort of set of ideas about what to do about the world? Yeah, I know that's a really good question. Um, I don't. I think that it's it's pretty muddy um, because the way that I present them in talks like this is to talk about them as conservative activists, and they were. They were broadly united by a shared sense of the the fight against communism as being underfought, um, not being fought hard enough. That something is slipping away. Um, that cultural values are changing in a way that they disagree with. And then all of this is tied together to and that, that, that liberal Keynesian economics and New Deal economics is bad um, and that it should be more of a free market economic system. And they certainly have a, they build an ideology, I think, around those values. Um, but what that doesn't get at is how contested those values and those ideas were. I mean, these aren't simply conservative activists who are all promulgating or propagating the same ideas. They're fighting over what the definition of conservatism is, what values matter, what ideas matter. And so there's a shared broad sensibility and a shared broad view of how government should work and the place of um, society vis-a-vis -vis government. Um, so the idea that you have to have, in order to have small government and still have a virtuous society, you have to have virtuous 
social life, right? That people have to be able to self-govern, and so they must adhere to a certain set of shared values about behavior, um, often about religion. So there's a, there's a unifying worldview and, and political philosophy there, but then when it comes to the specifics, what that looks like in terms of policy, um, that things get really hairy really quickly. And so one of the things that conservative media are doing is that they're, they're fighting to be the people who define conservatism. Right? They're saying who's in and who's out. When National Review writes about someone as a conservative, they're making an argument that that person is encompassed by the conservative worldview and by is promulgating conservative ideas. But that's an argument. Right? They're trying to convince people of the shape of the conservative <laughs> world. Um, and so that's a really fascinating part of studying this group is that in the process of promoting conservative ideas, they're defining those ideas. Um, What, um, have conservatives, in your mind, really given up on the GOP? And if so, if it's now a populist nationalist party and not a conservative party, and the Reagan moment is you know long gone, and that part of the of the GOP is gone, then what is next for them? I mean, on the one hand, there's writing you know our editorials in the National Review or you know expressing your opinions, but is there? Uh, have they given up on the GOP? They can't reform it. They can't fix it and make it conservative again. Are there are there voices that seriously are interested in a third party or some place for conservatism to to continue? Look, I, I don't think conservatives have conceded defeat on this. Right? It's been one election. Yeah. Um, so, and they're certainly not. I I've not heard any serious third party rumblings. In fact, there were more serious third party rumblings before the rise of Donald Trump, which I think suggests kind of the tumult and the discontent within the conservative movement prior to this. Uh, it's all kind of a mess right now, actually. I think for conservatives, it's going to be less about forming a new party and more about adjusting to a new form of right-wing coalition politics and understanding that they need to share the stage with populists and nationalists. And you see that in some conservative writing where the more pragmatic of the conservative movement are like, look, this is the new reality. Donald Trump is president. We need to modulate our policy preferences in order to match this. And then as we modulate our preferences in order to have a workable Republican majority, we need to continue to carry out the fight for the ideas so that we can begin to turn the tide back toward conservatism and re, you know, return the GOP to a conservative party. But I think they understand from years of having to do this, right, that there are two levels of fight. Right. You'll, you'll make the compromises in order to get political power. And no, no one is more practical about political power than conservatives. I mean, look at what happened in the last election. 90% of Republicans voted for Donald Trump, understanding that there are things that you can do when you control the White House that you can't do when you don't. Um, and that was a compromise about politics versus ideas. But conservatives who hold fast to a set of ideas want those ideas to win the day. Right? So they'll, they'll compromise, but they're going to continue to make the argument in order to try to win the party back. But I mean, where are they going to go? I think they also understand the, the reality of the two-party system and that power lay um, within one of the two parties. And that could change. I mean, if nothing else, the last two years have taught us that everything is unknowable. But, um, but I do think that's kind of where they are right now. And look, there's a longer reckoning to be had but right now, everything is in the middle of 
okay, we have power. We probably have power for a very finite amount of time. So let's figure out what to do with it and then fight those longer term battles when we can come up for air. It's my sense anyway. Bruce. I'll just ask, can I just ask you to think, I mean, I need this help and I think maybe we all do, to ask you to think aloud a little bit about populism, what is meant by that term today? Because I confess that I'm a little bit confused that sometimes when people invoke populism in the contemporary moment, as you did, they they mean it as a synonym for racial or ethnic nationalism. Mm. Sometimes they seem to mean it as a kind of, you know, you know, blowback against globalization and economic change. Sometimes they're just talking about it as a sort of nostalgic intolerance anti-Semitism, so on. And, and there's a lot of stuff that gets called populist that doesn't seem populist by how I would understand that term. So I wonder if you can just give us some sense of what you think populist, that designation populist means in the current Yeah, time. I think it's an incredibly furry term. Like it's one of those terms that gets used a lot, blends around the edges. And the examples that you're giving of what populism might, need, might mean, I think are very context dependent versus a more sort of abstract idea of populism. And as a historian, when I think about populism, I put it in kind of the, the arc of American populism. And I think about it in terms of, first of all, a kind of demos, right? This idea that we're appealing to a majority of the people. Um, although I do think that the people can be defined in really different ways. And I think in the current moment, when we talk about this populist nationalism, that the people um, is determined, particularly by race, um, and also by the sort of more loose and also very fuzzy, like, real Americanness. Like, there is a people, and that people is white, is... Um, Rural, I think, at this moment. I think rurality has been a part of populism for a really long time. But I think more than that, I mean, sort of um, thinking philosophically about populism, that it's this broad, virtuous people, self-defined, virtuous people, that are being robbed of their rightful power in a democracy by a corrupt elite and by a, a, a complicit underclass however that might be defined. Um, and I think that's where you get into both the anti-establishment nature of populism, which I think is a, a defining feature of populism, is this anti-establishment, this belief that there are small but powerful forces that unjustly hold power, combined with this idea of a, usually a deeply racialized underclass, and in this case, we're talking immigrants, we're talking African-Americans, we're talking Muslims, um, that also unjustly, have been unjustly empowered by those elites in kind of a partnership to steal power from um, the virtuous people, however that's defined. And so what you get there is you get that anti-establishment, but you also get that conspiratorial edge. And I think the experience of American populism has had a conspiratorial edge if you define it as a people being unjustly robbed of their power. And I do think that that is a thread that runs through populism. And that's why I use the word populism in a modified way to talk about conservatism, because I think that sense of entitlement and exclusion, we deserve this, we have been kept from having this, is a key sort of attitudinal um, part of populism. Um, so that's 
thinking aloud. I'm sure that if there were political scientists or people who have thought more deeply about this, um, it, they would probably skewer me in one or more ways. But that's my general, that's the general sort of framework that I bring when I talk and think about populism. Yeah. And you can see this on the, uh, I'll just say one more thing, you can see this on the left as well, right? When we talk about the Koch brothers and the AstroTurf, right? It's, it's the conservative rubes who are being taken advantage of by the Koch brothers and taking power away from the virtuous people who are small d democratic and big d democratic um, and are being kept from their power by the moneyed classes by um, Citizens United and what have you. So I think that it works um, in different, I mean, there are different registers to what the people are in those, but um, I think that it applies in both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would you also say that presenting a solution is kind of part of populism? Because in Europe you get this AFD, the Prong Arsenal, the UKIP, and they present ideas or solutions to problems that seem kind of, yeah, they will work and they're simple, so they're popular. And that gives me the feeling that that's, that's also a big part of populism. Presenting easy solutions, maybe blaming it on, on people you wouldn't consider like the core population, like you said, immigrants or maybe people with more liberal uh, points of view. Would you also consider this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's interesting. Um, I haven't thought it through enough, but you could see how if you had sort of sch a schematic worldview that said, okay, person. Group X and group Y are responsible for my problems. We just need to solve the problems of group X and group Y. So we need to repeal Citizens United and um, do voter education or what have you, right? Or on the other side, we need to purge all of the immigrants and we need to take power away from the establishment. And so I do think that there's something, there can be something about populism that panaceas appeal to, right? It's a simple answer that you can give to a large body of people. But then, I mean, if you look at populism in the United States, if you look at the Populist Party in the late 19th century, they had a very, like, well-drawn-out platform that included some really important reforms that actually would end up getting through, um, and some complex sub-treasury plans and, and all of these things as well. So populism doesn't have to be simplistic. It can be simplistic. Um, and I think, oh, oh he's not here. Um, um, one of the MA master students, Josh, has been writing about paranoid populism. Um, and I think when there's a more conspiratorial edge to it, then the, the solutions tend toward the more simplistic, because conspiracies, though they tend to be very complicated, um, tend to have a single root cause. Um, that if just that root cause is weeded out, then we'll be able to solve everything. So I don't think it has to be simplistic, but I think that it tends towards simplistic solutions. Because if you, if you look at the Trump administration or what's happened in Britain right now, there were a lot of promises and okay, we, there would be some this very simple steps and everything would be fine. And right now, Trump's tweeting and also the UK people in Britain are saying, okay, wow. It's a bit more complicated than we thought. Maybe we can do it that way. <laughs> no one knew Brexiting would be so complicated. Those are the two populist movements that actually came into power and they're both kind of fading what they promised right now. So. Right, uh, well, and I think that that's the thing with simple solutions, especially, I mean, here we're talking about far-right popular, or far-right, we're talking about right-wing populist movements within particular political contexts and systems. And so UKIP is sort of beating up um, is beating up folks from the right. Um, One Nation down in Australia is beating up the liberal conservative coalition down there. And I know in the case of One Nation, it's like just 
stop all the boat people from coming and suddenly Australia will be white and wonderful and we won't have to worry about things anymore. And so those kinds of simplistic solutions I think can be part of it, particularly when we're talking about growing but fairly small protest groups, right? They don't have to have workable agendas because they don't represent a majority. And I think that's that can be kind of um, the trap that some of these groups can get in is because while you're still kind of a, a fringe movement, which even though these are populist movements, you know, if you look at UKIP vote totals, let's set aside the American context for a second, UKIP and One Nation, some of these more far right, um, they don't have to have workable platforms because they don't have access to power. And then when they find themselves with power, or they find themselves having to Brexit. Um, and they need to come up with a plan in a hurry. That's not necessarily defining of all populist politics, but it is, I think, a condition of this particular moment and the sudden rise of some of these um, nationalist movements. Yes. One last question. Hi. Um, Phyllis Schlafly, it strikes me that one way um, you could tell the history of the conservative movement in America post-war is through Schlafly and starting with the uh, Tristan and Echo and ending with her last book on Donald Trump, which I think published, you know, came out like a day or two after she died, right? So on the one hand, it seems yeah. uh, that makes perfect sense. On the other hand, does it? Um, because... I just, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that book and her perspective and how, you know, someone who sort of lived through all of that time period because, you know, Goldwater was a professional politician. He was extremely smart. He was a gentleman, um, uh, in quotation, you know, all the things, the opposite of Trump, really. Right? He hated Trump, yeah. You know, um, you could not yeah. have stood for a person like this, you know. And so was Schlafly ultimately telling the line um, uh, absolutely what you would expect from her? Was it just a pragmatic move? Was it, you know, I just would like to know your yeah. thoughts on it. Goldwater was co-opted by the conservative grassroots. Goldwater was ultimately a libertarian. Yeah. And as the conservative grassroots evolved over the course of the 1960s and 70s and 80s, Goldwater looked around and was like, yeah. I want nothing to do with any of this. You think about Schlafly. Schlafly is basically the story of grassroots conservatism. And she moved along the flows of the grassroots right from the 1950s to the, to the 20 teens. And you can see that because actually I would trace it back Forget the choice on an echo, 1950s, Schlafly is putting together reading lists on communism. Mm -hmm. She's co-writing in the 1960s books on foreign policy um, with Chester Ward. And so she's she's very much involved in the, the flows of it. And then the 1970s happen, and what is she? She's an anti-equal rights amendment activist. She's an anti-feminist. She's at the cutting edge of this new sort of um, largely woman-led cultural grassroots family politics of the 1970s, merging into the religious right, um, very much Reagan and the new right in the 1980s. And she just continue, like, she just has her finger on the pulse in a way, because the Phyllis Schlafly of 1964 does not support Donald Trump. Right. Phyllis Schlafly of the, the 20-teens, I mean, she'd ridden the Tea Party wave. Yeah. And we might have seen her, I mean, certainly her own organization, the Eagle Forum, tried to oust her, tried to kick her out of her own organization that she had founded like 40 years earlier, 50 years earlier, because she supported Donald Trump. And they're like, we're evangelicals. Why would we support Donald Trump? Joke's on them. Evangelicals supported Donald Trump in huge, huge numbers. Um, so Phyllis Schlafly, finger on the pulse, though you wouldn't expect it. Um, and 
I think that that would be an interesting story to write. I mean, there's certainly books on Schlafly as sort of a window into conservative republicanism. Um, but the, man, the Trump turn, this is something, just as a kind of closing note, the next book that I'm working on is a history of the 1990s and uh, conservatism in the 1990s. And it was something that I was thinking about for a few years. I was thinking about the figures who would be a big part of it. So Pat Buchanan in 1992 launches this insurgent campaign. In 1994, Newt Gingrich becomes the Speaker of the House, the, the wave of um, conservatives taking over the Republican Party. 1996, Roger Ailes and Sean Hannity are at the forefront of Fox News. Um, Charles Murray writes The Bell Curve in 1994. It's like, okay, well, there are all these interesting things that are happening in the 1990s because it's this period after the Cold War where everything's kind of in flux. And fast forward a year, maybe mid-2016, and I look around and all the main characters of this book I want to write are supporting Donald Trump. And so something is happening in the 1990s, and some conservatives are there, some conservatives aren't. But the architects of conservatism in the 1990s are Trump supporters in 2016, and that is something that we need to understand a heck of a lot better than we already do. So in crazy political moments, there are historical precedents, but we just have to figure them out as things unfold. Right. Is, okay. it, oh, oh. Yeah. is it really just anything other than opportunism? I do think it's deeper than that um, because a lot of conservatives didn't immediately jump on the Trump train. And if we go back and we look, say, at Newt Gingrich's politics in the 1980s and 1990s, conservative was the, conservatism was the wave he was riding. But he had like an edge of nihilism to his politics and a bomb throwing to his politics and a Trumpness to his politics. Um, uh, Historian Brent Sibble and I wrote about this for The New Republic, that Gingrich should have hated Donald Trump because Donald Trump was dismantling the conservative project that Gingrich built in the 1990s. Um, but if you actually look at Gingrich's philosophy, his underlying philosophy in the 80s and 90s, you can kind of see how he would come to like Donald Trump um, at a time when like, folks like Rush Limbaugh were very slow to get behind Donald Trump, and certainly National Review didn't get on board at all. So what was it about these particular figures? And Pat Buchanan was advancing a paleoconservative philosophy that's sort of a precursor to, um, to Trump as well. So there's something, something's happening there. I don't think it's just opportunism, although opportunism might be a defining part of their politics. And in the 1990s, they were opportunists taking advantage of conservatism. And in the 20-teens, they were taking advantage of this populist nationalism. Yeah. So I think opportunism is tricky with someone who's so unpredictable. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like... As many think, people have learned. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the people who were on the dais when Trump gave his acceptance speech, right? Like Rudy Giuliani mm -hmm. and Newt Gingrich and Chris Christie. And we're all like, oh, they're going to be in his cabinet or something. Nope. You know, so you can... Yeah. So you, you can do what you think is right to get on the inside with this person, but then you're out. But I think there's so it a, makes it yeah. hard to be opportunistic, right? I think there's a difference between the opportunism of trying to get a job in the, in the administration and the opportunism of trying to take advantage of a political moment, mm -hmm. right? Sure. So trying to take advantage of whatever changes are happening in the politics as opposed to trying to <laughs> trump loyalty are <laughs> tricky business. <laughs> Everyone who's been fired has found out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that it, there might be a difference between the two. But you're right that it, the, it's hard to be an opportunist when you have no idea what opportunities you're trying to take yeah, advantage exactly. of. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you all very much for the great questions and take attention to all that.